on into John chapter 8. So would you turn with me there? And if you're using one of the Bibles underneath the chair, we'll be on page 521. Today in particular, it's going to be helpful for everyone to have uh, a copy of the Scriptures open. So if you don't have your own, grab one down there on page 521 in the chairs underneath in front of you. We have been walking our way together through just uh, paragraph by paragraph, section by section, through a biography of Jesus' life written by one of his closest followers, a man named John. And this book is, bears his name. It's called The Gospel of John. Uh, Christians are people who believe that God has spoken in his word and that we can come to God's word as a trustworthy reliable record of who God is, what God has done, and what God expects from us. John did a great job of telling us exactly why he wrote. So later in this book, it'll be on the screens behind me, it says in John 20, Now Jesus did many other signs in the presence of his disciples, which are not written in this book, meaning the book of John. But these are written so that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God. And that by believing, you may have life in his name. John says, Jesus did a bunch of amazing, historical, incredible things. Let me tell you about them. And the reason I'm telling you about them is so that you would place your trust in him. That you would give your life to God. That you would turn from sin and turn to him, believing that Jesus is, in fact, Christ. And so our prayer for you today is that you would trust Jesus if you have yet to do that, and that through this word being spoken, that you would turn away from sin and find life in Christ. And if you already have, if that's already happened to you, then our prayer this morning is that you'd be encouraged by God's word to continue deeply walking with Jesus. Today we come to the end of John 7 and the first part of John 8, so I will a read with us, starting in verse 53. It says, They went each to his own house, but Jesus went to the Mount of Olives. Early in the morning he came to the temple. All the people came to him, and he sat down and taught them. The scribes and the Pharisees brought a woman who had been caught in adultery. And placing her in the midst, they said to him, Teacher, this woman's been caught in the act of adultery. Now in the law, Moses commanded us to stone such women. So what do you say? This they said to test him, that they might have some charge to bring against him. Jesus bent down and wrote with his finger on the ground. As they continued to ask him, he stood up and said, Let him who is without sin among you be the first to throw a stone at her. Once more he bent down and wrote on the ground. But when they heard it, they went away one by one, beginning with The older ones, Jesus was left all alone with the women standing before him. Jesus stood up and said to her, Woman, where are they? Has no one condemned you? She said, No one, Lord. And Jesus said, Neither do I condemn you. Go. And from now on, sin no more. This is an amazing story. It's a beautiful picture of the forgiveness and the new life that God offers. It's a powerful account. It may, in fact, have happened. There's no reason to think it didn't. 
but it doesn't belong in your Bible. I have your attention now. There is strong reason to question the authenticity of these verses. When John wrote the Gospel of John, he probably did not write what I just read to you. Look closely in your Bible and you'll notice there are either brackets around this section or there's a footnote at the beginning or the end that says, earliest manuscripts do not include this section. Every English translation I could find this week, they handle this text that way. Now, this is the, the translator's way of telling us something like this. This is in some of the Greek manuscripts of the Bible, but it's not in the earliest ones. And because it's not in the earliest ones, it was very likely added later. And because it's added later, you shouldn't take it to be original. It's probably not something John actually wrote. Now, there's a wide variety of responses to that. I see them on your faces. Uh, some of you may think, I already knew this, no big deal. Uh, some of you may think, it's a really good thing we're taking a vote on some more pastors because we need to get rid of that guy. Some of you might think, huh, who cares? I didn't believe much of it anyway. But the fourth group is really the group I want to take time to talk to carefully today. And that's the group that's thinking something like this. Wait a second. I thought the whole Bible was God's Word. I thought I could trust all of it. Now you're telling me I can't trust that? Why should I trust any of it if I can't trust this? What I want to do this morning is use this incredibly rare occasion to talk about what the Bible actually is and very briefly how we got it. My hope is that that will encourage us that we can trust God's Word. Now, I use the phrase incredibly rare because I've been preaching here in this local congregation for eight and a half years, and we've never come to a section like this before. And we will never come to a section like this again unless we're preaching through Mark. The end of Mark and this section in John are the only two sections in the Bible that the authenticity of what's stated should be questioned. Now, that might not sound like a big deal to you, but Mark 16, 9 to 20, and John 7, 53 through 8, 11 probably are not original. But there are no other major sections or groups of verses in the entire Bible like this. And there is no big scheme from spiritual people in power seeking to hold us down in uh, stupidity. Nobody's trying to hide this. It's right there marked in your own Bible for you to see. But sometimes people take facts like John 53 through 8:11 and twist them around to say that you can't know what the original document said. And so what I want to do this morning is try and speak to that. And this is not something I've ever done before, so except for the last gathering. So I hope that it is an encouragement to you. But maybe you've heard things like this. 
you can't trust the Bible because it's so full of errors. Or the Bible was written hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of years after. Or no one actually believed any of that stuff until people in power chose to put it together to use it to subject people to their rule. Friends, yes, the end of Mark and this part of John are likely not authentic. But think of this in light of the whole. There's a little over three, uh, there's a little over 31,000 verses in the Bible. And there's two sections of a few verses that probably weren't in the original. You can trust the Bible. But I want to explain why. What I want to do is talk briefly about the transmission of the Bible. So we're just going to stick our toe in this topic. And those of you who want to study more about it, I'd love to get some resources into your hands and spend time with you. But before we get into that, let me just clarify what I'm saying, because I want to be crystal clear. Let's do this through looking at a couple of other passages. It'll be on the screens behind me. One is 2 Timothy 3.14. It says, but as for you, continue in what you've learned, and I firmly believed, knowing from who you've learned it, and how from childhood you've been acquainted with the sacred writings, which are able to make you wise for salvation through faith in Jesus Christ. All scriptures God breathed, or breathed out by God, and profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, for training in righteousness, that the man of God may be complete, equipped for every good work. The Apostle Paul wrote those words to his protege, Timothy. He was in a sense, passing on the baton of leadership to Timothy, who was a pastor in the church, because Paul knew he would soon die, and he knew that the ministry would be carried on by people who faithfully taught God's Word. So he's telling Timothy, Timothy, it's in the Scriptures that you can know how to come to salvation. Timothy, it's in the Scriptures that you can be equipped for every good work. Some of your translations will use the phrase breathed out by God. Others might say inspired by God. His point is that God gave us the Scriptures. Yes, they were recorded by people, but it, it was breathed out. It contains, it is the very words of God Himself. And it's useful for those purposes. And so how does that relate to this section in John 7, 53 to 8, 11? What I'm trying to say to you is that portion of Scripture isn't authoritatively given to us by God. It's not useful for us in the ways that the rest of the Bible is. It's not designed by God to have command over us because it was added much later by somebody else. Same thing is true for the end of Mark. Now, let me just put all the cards on the table. You know that expression, right? Okay. Many times what will happen is Christians will want to say, John 7 and 8, I like that. So I'm going to believe that story. But the end of Mark, the one with the snakes and the if you get bit, you won't die, that's in there if you haven't ever read that part. Uh, or maybe seen the weird documentaries about the churches of 10 people back east in small little towns handling snakes. But friends, the, here's, 
Here's the issue. Uh, the same manuscripts that don't contain the end of Mark also don't contain this portion of John. And so while we would have reason to say that end of Mark has got weird stuff in it, not anywhere else in the rest of the Bible, therefore it's suspect, and that's not true in John 8. There's no reason to think Jesus wouldn't have said the things he said there. You don't get to pick and choose. We've got to be consistent. And so probably neither one of these things was originally intended by God to be our Word of God. Let me show you a different scripture. It'll be on the screen, 2 Peter 1. And we have the prophetic word more fully confirmed, to which you do well to pay attention as to a lamp shining in a dark place until the day dawns and the morning star rises in your heart. Knowing this, first of all, that no prophecy of Scripture come from someone's own interpretation. For no prophecy was ever produced by the will of man, but men spoke from God as they were carried along by the Holy Spirit. Peter is telling the churches in Asia Minor, the Word of God, and in particular the prophecies of the Word of God, didn't come about because someone decided to write them down. They came about because God moved, the Spirit moved in people's lives in such a way that they wrote what God said. How does that relate to John 8? Well, the way it relates is these words were not ones that the Spirit carried along John to write. Instead, they were probably words that a scribe later added, and then they got copied into some of the manuscripts over time. You need a stretch break. Feel like you're at school. All right. So that brings up the whole question, how do we get the Bible? And if we can't trust that part, why trust any of it? Friends, the Bible is an ancient library. It's a collection of 66 books gathered together, and it's God's good and His authoritative word. Both those words are important. The Word of God is good. It's useful. It's helpful. God will change your life through His Word. And it's authoritative. It has the command of God, the status of God Himself speaking. We're blessed in town in Phoenix to have um, a scholar named Wayne Grudem. He teaches at Phoenix Seminary. And Dr. Grudem says this about the authority of Scripture. The authority of Scripture means that all the words of Scripture are God's words in such a way that to disbelieve or disobey any word of Scripture is to disbelieve or disobey God. That's what the Bible claims for itself. And so if Grudem is right, and if the Bible's claims even more so are right, then it's of critical importance that we know what actually belongs here and what doesn't. Are you still with me? Okay, one of you is still with me. Mike Bond is still with me. So how do we get the Bible? Well, we could spend a long, long, long time talking about that. But let me give you a very brief overview. The Bible didn't fall out of the sky. It didn't come down in its leather form with your name inside. 
The Bible didn't come from one dude in a cave who got a revelation and he recorded it. The Bible didn't come from hundreds of years after it was written, a group of people got together because a Roman emperor got them together and they decided what the Bible is. That's not how it happened either. How did it happen? Very briefly, this is I'm broad brush stroking trying to explain this. It all begins with God. The Bible doesn't start with people, and its main subject isn't people. It's about God, and God started the process. God revealed Himself. God chose to make Himself known. He didn't have to do that, but in grace and kindness, He did. And then He inspired people to write down what He revealed. So God revealed and God inspired what He wanted them to say. Next came what's called an autograph. Any baseball fans? Again, like two of you, three of you. This doesn't mean they wrote on baseballs, okay? When we think of autograph, we think of something like that. An autograph refers to the original document that was written on. So the very, 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 very first. That's called an autograph. The autograph was then taken, delivered to whomever it was written for, and they received it as God's Word. They didn't assign it status it didn't have. They didn't give it authority. They received it as being God's Word. They recognized this is different than anything else that we have. Those autographs were then copied they were copied on what's called manuscripts. And remember, they didn't open up their MacBook and hit print and a nice copy come out. This was painstaking labor as scribes copied and copied and copied and copied and copied. And it would take lots of time. Those manuscripts were then broadly passed around. And over time, there was recognition in a wide geographical area that this is, in fact, God's Word. Those documents were collected together, and then they were translated, and that's how we got the Bible. If you can come up with some weird acronym to remember that, I would love that, so let me know. Now, let me talk just a few minutes about the New Testament itself, because we're dealing with the Gospel of John. All the translations today that are working from the original documents, so the original manuscripts, all come from a book that looks like this. Now, you can't see it, but it's red, so it's Christmassy. We're being festive and in the spirit, right? It says on the front, the Greek New Testament, fifth revised, fifth revised edition with dictionary. What this is, is people have gone and they've collected all the manuscripts that have been found from the ancient times. So from the first 253, 350 years of the first century. They have, uh, the first millennia, they have gathered them together, they've collected them, they've studied them, and they've said, this is what the originals would have said. If you are a secular scholar at ASU teaching the history of religion, you don't believe in Christianity, you use this. If you are a very strong, committed Christian who has learned Greek, 
You use this. Everybody's using the same stuff. And on every page, you find the Greek text, and then underneath it, you find what looks like a whole bunch of gibberish. And what that gibberish is, is every manuscript is labeled by what type of paper it's on, and then by its number and where it's found. And it is true that all of these manuscripts, if you get them all together, they don't match. That's true. But guess how many of these there are? Over 5,000. And so, by a science of interpretation, scholars can collect all of these together and they can very, very confidently figure out what was the original because there's so many copies. There isn't anything else like this in the ancient world. I'll explain that in a few minutes. But everybody uses this. Now, it's just flat false that because there are so many documents and there are variants within those documents that we can't know what the original said. That's not true. That's a lie. That's a, I am biased against the Bible. So much of what I heard in school just wasn't true about this. Let me try to talk you through that a little bit. The fact that there's so many copies is incredibly helpful because all these copies can be compared together. And there's a, a science called textual criticism where people spend their whole entire lives learning how to read these documents, how to compare them together, and how to figure out what the original was. Again, there is no conspiracy to hide this from anybody. You can buy this, you can learn how to read it, you can make decisions for yourself. In your English Bible, this section is marked, there's brackets, there's footnotes, and every now and then in your Bible, you'll see a footnote that says, some manuscripts say this, the manuscripts say that. Have you noticed this? Have you been through the Bible? The vast majority of these manuscripts are things like uh, a letter drops off, or a scribe wrote, Jesus Christ instead of Christ Jesus. They're tiny, minuscule, insignificant, insignificant, or insignificant errors, of which I just made one. Now, when I got to college, I was just absolutely destroyed by this stuff because I didn't know any of it. I came from a, a church that taught the Bible well, but I had no idea where the Bible came from. And so I got in class and began talking about my faith, and my peers and my professors began telling me in not-so-nice words, you're an idiot, you shouldn't believe that, you haven't been thoughtful, you're a dumb Christian. Didn't you know that you can't trust the Bible because the Bible's so full of errors and there's no way to know what the original would have said? And that just eroded the ground out from underneath my faith. Because if I can't trust the Bible, where am I going to go? Christianity isn't a faith mainly of what you feel. It's an objective, historical faith outside of you that once is believed changes everything inside. But it isn't like believing in Buddha. It's not 
mainly what you feel and what you don't think about. It's what you do think about. And so this is an incredibly significant issue. Now let's apply this to John in a unique way that doesn't happen anymore because there are no more apostles. God spoke to John. God revealed himself to John. And God inspired John to write down the Gospel of John. John knew Jesus personally. He witnessed the things he wrote about. And so he's an accurate, trustworthy eyewitness to the things that he teaches. John wrote out that inspired word on a what? Do you remember what we called it? You can cheat if you need to. An autograph. So an autograph is the original document that John wrote. Now guess how many of those we have? None. We don't have any. But don't panic. That's okay. We don't have to have that. We have lots and lots and lots and lots and lots and lots of copies of what John wrote. Now what does that tell us? It tells us that the Gospel of John was understood from the very beginning to have an incredible, trustworthy, powerful, historically accurate description of who Jesus is and what Jesus did. There aren't lots of copies of lots of things. That doesn't exist. But there are lots of copies of John. And if you take the New Testament as a whole, there's around 5,400 copies from within the first couple of hundred years after they were written. It's incredible. The copies are called manuscripts. Now, those manuscripts that scribes got, and they copied because they wanted John to be spread out, have been found in Africa, Asia, and the Middle East. What does that tell us? It tells us their broad, very early consensus. This is an important document because people weren't hitting print. They weren't sending it in an email. They weren't posting it on a website painstakingly copying it, hand-delivering it all over the ancient world. The oldest one of these to be discovered is a document called P52. Turn to your neighbor and say P52. Good job. Maybe you'll remember it. It is not top secret, Tony. P... The P stands for papyrus because it was written on papyrus. The 52 is the number. Now, it is a document about that big. On that document contains part of John 18 on this side and part of John 18 on this side. But here's the crazy thing. Scholars have dated this piece of material to somewhere between 100 and 150 A.D. Nothing you have ever learned about ancient history has anything close to that outside the Bible. Now, if you think, well, that guy's just paid to preach. He's making all this up. Buy a plane ticket. Go over to England. You can see this in a museum. Lots of people have studied it. It is the oldest piece of the New Testament that's been discovered. 
incredibly early to what John had written. It's possible it was an original copy from an autograph. If not, then it was probably a copy of a copy. Incredible. Absolutely incredible. These were collected, translated, and now we have the Gospel of John. Now, one more dorky fact, and then we'll go on, okay? Let's say we had none of these 5,400 manuscripts. None. They were all lost. We didn't have any of them. Let's say we had nothing that John wrote. No Gospel of John. In this form or in a whole scroll. It would still be possible to piece together everything John wrote. Because the leaders who came after the apostles, they're called the church fathers, the patristic fathers. These guys quote the New Testament so much that if you just take their writings and their quotations where they say this is what the New Testament says, then you can piece together the entire New Testament. Now, what does that tell us? It tells us something incredibly, incredibly extraordinary happened as people read the Bible. God changed their lives. They understood this to be God speaking. And God preserved that in an incredible way. Now, why trust the Bible? That's the question. That's why we're having this conversation today. Friends, let me try attacking it from a different angle. We'd be fools to accept Plato or the Gallic Wars or Tacitus's Annals. I messed that up last hour. Or Herodias's history. We would be fools to take what we know today them to have written as authentic and trustworthy, but to chuck the Bible. But you've probably never heard that before. As you studied Roman history in class, you were probably never told that the copies we have of those documents are very, very, very new compared to what we have in the New Testament. All of those documents I just listed, there are 10 or fewer manuscripts that have been discovered. And the earliest of all of them is dated about 1,000 years after the autograph would have been written. Compare that to the Bible. Compare that to the New Testament. 5,400 copies within a couple of hundred years. Only a bias against God, against the supernatural, would cause someone to say, I'll take Plato at his word, but I'm not going to take the Bible at its word. There is simply no better historical evidence for the Bible in any document about any topic. If you can trust any ancient document, you can trust the Bible. But that's just logical, deductive reasoning. That's all that is. There's nothing particularly Christian about what I've said to you. 
Anyone doing the normal work of history could reach those conclusions. Far more important is that we be people who simply take God at His word. What do I mean? Ultimately, I would challenge you to encourage you to believe the Bible is the Bible because the Bible says the Bible is the Bible. Now, one of the things I was told in school in my sophomore year when I gave a speech about this and didn't know what I was talking about, I sat down and my professor said to me after my speech, of the Bible is the Bible. He said, well, how do you know the Bible is the Bible? I said, the Bible is the Bible because the Bible says the Bible is the Bible. And he said, well, that's circular reasoning. And I thought, oops. I made something up, but I had no idea how to respond to that. Have you ever heard that? Friends, it has to be that way. Because the Scriptures are making the claim that they are the ultimate authority. They're they're making the claim to speak for God. They're making the claim that this is what God says. Take God at His word. Trust Him. This is Him speaking. And so, in the end, we must take that at its word or reject it at its word. We can't appeal to something else in order to arrive at that conclusion. Because what would that be doing? In other words, if I said, well, here's science that's in the Bible way before scientists knew the things they now tell us. And that's why I believe the Bible is a Bible. Well, what have I just done? I've made science the authority, not God, not the Bible. So even if we take all this incredibly powerful evidence in history that I've given you this morning, You can't ultimately say, well, I believe the Bible is the Bible because of the incredible number of manuscripts and the incredible reliability we can have that this is what was said and nothing else has been preserved this way. You can't do that because then you're making your interpretation of history to be the authority. The issue, finally... is can God be trusted? Is what the Bible says about the Bible true? So what I should have said to this professor is, in one sense, you're wrong, and we could talk about that, but in another sense, you're right. This is a circular argument, and it has to be, because the Bible is claiming to be the ultimate authority. Another thing I wish I'd said to him is, well, Jesus... The the one who came back from the dead, Jesus understood the Scriptures to be God's Word. And I'll take the word of a guy who rose from the dead over you with your initials after your name. Jesus understood the Bible to be God speaking. If it's enough for Jesus, it ought to be enough for us. Now, you got to decide, though. Nobody else can do this for you. But the encouragement of Christians through the centuries has been, don't sit around and argue about this. Instead, open the book and read. And what you'll find is 
The same Spirit that inspired these words to be written is the same Spirit who will awaken your heart. The Bible is self-authenticating. God will use it to persuade you that He is, in fact, the one speaking through this book. And that's great news. Do you want to know that you know that you know God? Do you want to hear from God? Do you want to know that you've heard Him speak? Do you want to know you're not alone? Do you want to know you're on good terms with the one who's full of hope? Do you want to know that you know that what you've heard is actually from Him, not just the burrito you had last night? Do do you long to hear His voice, to feel His embrace, to know what life is about? to know everything that He would expect you to do. Everything God would want you to know, God has spoken. Now where? In our remaining five minutes, let me show you. Turn over to Psalm chapter 19. You can have everything I just talked about. You can have the knowledge that God is speaking. He has not left this to chance, and He is not silent. He shows us in Psalm 19 how to hear from Him. Psalm 19, verse 1, the heavens declare the glory of God. The sky above proclaims His handiwork. Day to day pours out speech. Night to night reveals knowledge. There is no speech, nor are there words whose voice is not heard. Their voice goes out through all the earth, their words to the ends of the world. In them He has set a tent for the sun which comes out like a bridegroom leaving his chamber and like a strong man runs its course with joy. Its rising is from the ends of the heavens and its circuit to the end of them and nothing is hidden from its heat. The psalmist is saying, God is talking. God is talking all the time. God has never not been talking. What's he talking through? He's talking through what he's made. So when you travel and you see an incredible waterfall, And something inside of you is just in awe. When you're outside and you notice one of those Arizona sunsets where the the whole sky is on fire. When you travel to the ocean and you sit in a chair and you just stare. When you're in the mountains and your flesh is not boiling and there's animals and living things growing, and you're just in awe. What is that? That's God speaking. God's saying, I'm powerful. I made this. I'm eternal. All people everywhere who have ever lived can see that God exists and that He's powerful because He's speaking through what He's made. So do you want to know who God is? Turn off Netflix, get your face out of your phone, finish with your finals, and go outside. God speaks through what He's made. But read on. Verse 7, the law of the Lord is perfect, reviving the soul. The testimony of the Lord is sure, making wise the simple. 
The precepts of the Lord are right, rejoicing the heart. The commandment of the Lord is pure, enlightening the eyes. The fear of the Lord is clean, enduring forever. The rules of the Lord are true and righteous altogether. More to be desired are they than gold, even much fine gold. Sweeter also than the honey and the drippings of the honeycomb. Moreover, by them is your servant warned. In keeping them there is great reward. Who can discern his errors? Declare me innocent from hidden faults. Keep back your servant from presumptuous sins. Let them not have dominion over me. Then I will be blameless and innocent with great transgression. Let the words of my mouth and the meditations of my heart be acceptable in your sight, O Lord, my rock and my redeemer. The psalmist is saying incredibly clearly, God speaks through what he's made, but God says way more through his word. If you want to know God, pick up the book, open it, read, slow down, think about what you're reading, pray, for God uses his word to make us people who are acceptable through the gospel of Jesus Christ. Friend, you can trust the Bible. You can take God at his word, and your life will be incredibly different if you do. May we be people who feast on God's Word daily, every day, opening it that we might hear from God. And may we be people who study God's Word in community. Do you know why? Our Bible is perfect. Our interpretation of the Bible is not perfect. We are all tempted to read onto it our own experiences, our culture, our issues. And what reading the Bible in community does is help us see that, that we might see what it actually says. And then finally, may we share God's Word liberally. Friends, if the Bible is God's Word, then the most important way you could ever love another human being is to tell them what God says. For it's through His Word that we come to know Him. Let's pray. God, thank You that You have not been silent. You have left us with Your Word that we might know You, that we might hear how to become wise unto salvation, that we might be equipped for every good work that you've set out for us. Father, help us to be people of the word. I pray if there's any here today who are unsure on this whole issue, that they'd either, either come to me or another leader or a friend who came with them, but they'd have conversations, Lord, about this. They'd sort through the facts. And most importantly, that they'd read and pray. Father, help us to be a people who love you, who listen to your word, and who share it with grace and truth. In Jesus' name I pray, amen.